The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. When people leave our monastery in New Zealand, it's very common that they'll say, Ajahn, that was a wonderful experience. Now it's time for me to go back to the real world. And I think, dude, you have no idea. <laughs> Another friend of mine, he'll, uh, when things are going well, he'll say, oh, we're living the dream. He doesn't realize how unintentionally insightful that is. <laughs> so, uh, so tonight, let's talk a little bit about reality. <laughs> I actually have a red pill and a blue pill. <laughs> Okay, so normally what we think of as reality is pretty obvious, right? We see something, we hear something, we taste something, we smell something, we cognize something. We, okay, it's obvious. It's real. Right? But uh, we all live in a bubble. Normally we think of a, a bubble as uh, a bubble of maybe views or beliefs or social or political opinions based on Maybe a lack of information. Right? Tend to uh, like to think of other people being in a bubble, and because of their limited information, or we who are kind of more open-minded and wise, we don't live in a bubble. But the truth is, we all live in a bubble. We can't help it. Right? We live in a bubble based on our experience, our social conditioning, um, so many factors that create this particular. Uh, perception, this this what we call reality. Right. So the common idea of reality is that there is a fixed reality outside. And then we perceive it through our senses. Right. So we can see, but we can't see as well as, let's say, an eagle. Or we can smell, human beings can smell. Not that any of us smell, but human beings can smell, but Dogs can smell like 10,000 to 100,000 times more accurately, pick up more information than humans can. So imagine what the reality is for a dog. I mean, some uh, machines, for example, can pick up spectrums of light that animals and humans can't. So it's like there's this reality, a fixed reality outside, but then depending on how subtle our senses are that basically determines our personal reality. Got external reality, our personal reality. That's kind of a common sense way of viewing it. But then if you don't pay attention to something, does it exist? Right? There's another factor. Paying attention to something. Basically, if, if uh, there is some external object, this could be a sound, could be a sight, something, and uh, our senses are functioning, and there's light, for example, then, uh, and we're paying attention, we have consciousness, then sense contact happens. 
But if one of those things is not, then our reality is, is radically shifted. So, for example, if we're not paying attention, personally, it doesn't seem to exist for us, although we could still say it exists externally. We have one of the members of our committee that looks after our monastery uh, recently celebrated his uh, 60th wedding anniversary. So I, I asked him, what's the key to a long-lasting, happy relationship? He said, Ajahn, selective hearing. <laughs> so basically, it's like you pay attention to what you want to pay attention to and disregard the rest. <laughs> Man, here's what he wants to hear. And so this idea that somehow we, we create a subjective reality that is personal, but uh, there is a fixed external reality that we tap into. And basically, as long as our senses are functioning well enough to allow us to survive and act and respond, and then basically, you know, we thrive as a species, right? We don't have to get all the information. To get all the information that's available to us is like sensory overload, right? It's just debilitating. It's too much. So we just tend to pick up on what, what is most important, what we think is most important, or what we're conditioned to to think is of most important, and that forms our reality. So we end up in this kind of limited, um, kind of self-perpetuating idea of a reality that it's based somewhat on a stable external reality. But then you throw your mind in there, right? Let's say in a meditation retreat. If you've been on a meditation retreat, two people sitting next to each other, experiencing almost the exact same sights, sounds, smells, uh, tactile sensations, touches, right? Five senses, pretty much all the same for both people. And yet one person could be, their reality is, is, uh, is relaxed, it's spacious, it's happy, bright, Joyful, maybe very few physical sensations, feeling very comfortable in their body. And the person sitting next to them with the same, basically the exact same information through their five senses can basically be in tortured, right? They're just being tortured by uh, maybe uh, thoughts of anger, uh, self-doubt, self-incrimination, self um a mind that won't stop thinking. Right? Maybe their body is, uh, even though the two people might be equally flexible, say in a yoga class, one person's body might be uh, racked with pain, you know, just filled with pain. So what's the difference between the two? It's the mind. So the way the Buddha looked at the mind is the sixth sense, not in terms of intuition, but like the mind is a non-physical sense that picks up thoughts, perceptions, moods, emotions, basically consciousness, if we're paying attention. Now, in the same way that if we don't pay attention to, to sounds, then, uh, then 
kind of don't exist for us. Right? I remember <laughs> there was one photo my mother took of me when I was a, must have been like six years old. I was watching TV, watching morning cartoons in my pajamas, and I, get, I just get so focused on the TV that she would call my name and I couldn't hear, literally could not hear. So she decided, she actually took a photo of me, stood right in front of me, took a photo of me, it's like absorbed into the TV. I didn't even notice she was standing there until she had taken the photo. So deep states of, of uh, meditation are, are similar. If uh, our attention is solely focused on our object of meditation, could be uh, a theme, could be a breath, could be any, any type of meditation that we're doing. If our attention is absolutely unified or solely taken up with that theme of meditation, then we basically won't hear sounds or feel any uh, physical sensations. That's why people who have good concentration can sit for hours, theoretically for days. Right? Uh, but generally, if you still, um, if you take an air horn and blow it next to somebody, they're still going to hear it. Or if you hit them with a hammer, you know, that might be enough. So please do not test, <laughs> please do not test your meditation teachers. So with this mind, it's the same way. There may be all sorts of thoughts, fears, moods, emotions, motivations going on, but if we're not paying attention to it, then it's as if they don't exist for us, but they still control our life. So not paying attention, normally this uh, is not beneficial, even though it might lead to being married for 60 years. Right? Not paying attention normally is not beneficial. It's what we call not being mindful. Right? Forget your keys. We stub our toe. We hit our head. We, we miss important information. Right? All sorts of uh, things can happen. We get into an accident right? when we're not mindful. And if we're not mindful of our internal landscape, the consequences are uh, a bit more bit more dire, a bit more negative, right? We may go through our whole life with certain motivations, being fueled by, it could be fear, for example. Right? Some people, you know, their whole life, they're, they're just fueled by fear, worry, and insecurity, just motivated by this all the time, all the possible things that could go wrong in the future. It's going to motivate and, and, uh, and have very little awareness of that. Right? But it still controls our life. Or maybe we could be motivated by what? Desire for acceptance or praise or respect or approval. Right? Because they're motivating us. You know, all these minor and major decisions we make in our life are motivating. But if we're not aware of what is motivating us, then. We're basically uh, living a bit of a robotic life. So attention, paying attention, is very key for the quality of our reality. So you've got seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind. Right? So it's called our six senses. 
Essentially, this, this, uh, this forms what we call our reality. But then, uh, that's just raw sense data. Whatever, we, whatever we're picking up from seeing, hearing, etc., that's just raw sense data until we interpret it. So this is a whole other level of creating a, uh, what, we, what we think of as, as a clear external reality. But externally, there may be only shape and color, for example. You know, we see shape and color, and then... Very quickly, we try to put it into a category, a concept, put a label on it. And if you pay attention, it's very uncomfortable if we see something or hear something and we don't have a category for it. The mind kind of quickly oscillates looking for a folder to put it in. Is it here, this, what is that, what is that, what is that? And it feels very comfortable when we say, ah, that's this. So how we interpret something then? Let's say uh, we see shape and color, but uh, at, that, at that point, it's not until it goes through the eye and is perceived and labeled that we start to have a, um, a functional sense of, oh, this is a person. Oh, this is someone I know. This goes into a category. Right? Let's say... I do this a lot for food because uh, food meditation, eating meditation is, is very useful to work with. Let's say you go into a room and the raw sense data is there's just colors and shapes, but there's a round shape with certain red color on it with some dots and quickly the perception pizza arises. Now, that, can only, that perception can only arise if we've had some experience with pizza in the past. And then very quickly, if that past experience has been positive, then we think, oh, pizza is delicious. And it quickly goes from this raw sense data to, there's a pizza, pizza is delicious, I would like some pizza. <laughs> you try some pizza, and say, so how's your pizza? Says, pizza is good. In what sense is it good? Well, it gives me pleasant sensations. Right? So very quickly, it just goes from raw sense data to perception. I recognize it. This is what it is externally. If we have a positive history with it, we like it. If we have a negative history with it, then um, we perceive it as, as unpleasant. We don't like it. If it's positive, we think, hmm, how can I get some? I wonder whose pizza that is. If we don't like it, it's like, how can I get rid of it? Maybe a person, maybe a situation. How can I get rid of it? I don't want that. If it's pleasant, then we think, how can I hold on to this? Right? Very quickly, this, this proceeds from step to step. And pretty quickly, as soon as you perceive something as likable, pleasant, good, you think, how can I hold on to it? How can I keep it? What happens if I lose it? Because it's mine. Right? Very quickly, it's like my pizza, or at least my piece of pizza. What if someone takes my piece of pizza? And then you can get, and suddenly you have fear. 
five minutes ago you didn't even know it existed. <laughs> now you're thinking about you know, worrying about losing your piece of pizza. <laughs> so the role that perception plays in creating our reality is, is, uh, is fundamental, it's key. And it's malleable to, to a great extent. If we're not doing meditative exercises and training, then we tend to just in, perceive things according to our cultural conditioning. Right? Our cultural conditioning, um, the time, you know, the era that we've been born in, the place that we've been raised, our family, what we read, our personal experiences, our discussions that we have, basically this all forms a way that we perceive something. And to a large extent, it's just out of our control. And we project it out. We perceive something, project it out, and think that, oh, that's the way something is. But it's only perceived that way because of the specific cultural conditioning. Now, it's like if you're if you're born in Norway in 1920 into a strict Lutheran family and in the countryside, it's pretty predictable what your views or perceptions will be around, say, religion, comforts, wild dancing. Right? But if you're raised in the 21st century, South Minneapolis, then uh, it's also fairly predictable what people's views will be on religion or comforts or wild dancing. So a lot of these perceptions are, are just out of our control if we don't make the effort to understand it. One of the benefits of at least theoretically theoretically understanding how we create our personal reality through how we perceive something is it's easier to get along with other people. Right? If we think that there's an external fixed reality and then we perceive something, then of course our perception is basically accurate. We see it, we experience it, it's obvious. It's not good. We're not going to perceive it wrongly. And we assume there tends to be the assumption that other people are perceiving it in the same way. So if we perceive something, a, a situation, and say, oh, this is the situation, and then someone else has a different perception or a different opinion formed from a different perception, we think, it's obvious they're wrong. Right? It's just obvious. <laughs> if we can see something, it's obvious. If someone sees it differently, then they must be wrong. So then, you know, out of compassion, then you try to change their opinion. <laughs> because, you know, you care about them. You don't want them to go around in life with wrong opinions. It's just, it's just the compassionate thing to do. So usually that proceeds uh, through arguing. <laughs> right? So how do you... So then conflicts uh, in relationships, conflicts at work, conflicts anywhere, political discussions, 
how is it that people can perceive the same situation in such radically different ways? But if you, if you at least start with the theoretical idea that, okay, yes, there may, be, there may be a fixed reality, but everyone, due to their social conditioning, perceive things very individually. Right? Everyone's perceiving the same situation completely uniquely. Right? So in this way, more, more literally, we are living in separate realities. Everyone's living in a separate reality. This person understands it this way. This person understands it that way. I see it this way. We can all, we can all respect each other's perceptions, even though they're different. On the level of perception, they're ni neither right nor wrong. Right? It's just, okay, that's just a perception. And then the opinions that come from seeing things differently are kind of logical outcomes well, you perceive it differently, that's why you end up with this opinion. I perceive things one way, that's how I end up with this view. Both people can be right. It's not that one person has to be right and the other wrong. So, so it does have practical applications, even just on the theoretical level, reminding ourselves that, oh, maybe, um, maybe they're simply living in a, in a different reality. Maybe that's all it is. It's not that they're wrong. They're just living in their own reality. I've seen people sometimes in like what I would think would be like actual abusive situations. And then other people convince them that, that it's good for them. Or they convince themselves that it's good for them. Right? Just, so perceptions are malleable. Or I've seen people in situations that I think I would say would be actually good for them, healthy for them. And then other people might convince them that it's bad, it's evil, it's wrong. Right? I've seen people who can perceive relatively kind of simple, innocuous, normal situations as uh, kind of sinister. Like you realize perceptions, you know, perception plays such a powerful role in how we experience reality. And mostly, people don't question their perceptions. You know, if we, if we perceive something, if we understand something in a particular way, then kind of assume that we're right and that other people see it uh, at least similarly. But it is, uh, it's amazing how radically people can perceive something, and that determines the, the reality that they're living in. One of the great meditation masters uh, of the 20th century, I think I can objectively say, but is my reality, that one of the great Meditation masters of the Thai forest tradition was named Ajahn Mahabua, and uh, very famous in Thailand. And uh, I think objectively, you could you could fairly confidently say fully enlightened, but had a fiery character. So every time that I would see him, I would go to pay respects regularly, just filled with inspiration, and uh, go as often as I could. 
Then one time, another person, I had recommended someone to go stay, and they came back and said, well, how was your time with Ajahn Mahabua? They said, he's just an old man with anger problems. <laughs> I'm like, really? 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 That's what you got out of staying with Ajahn Mahabua? And it's like, well, okay. Whose perception is right? <laughs> All right? You can't really have both. You can't be enlightened and have anger issues. It's like, it's, but on the level of perceptions, that's, that was the reality for that person. So, okay, fine. I, was, I didn't try to convince them otherwise. Even Ajahn Chah, you know, people would perceive Ajahn Chah in such a wide variety of ways. He was multi, kind of multi-sided, or you just say people saw different things. Or projected different things. Some people saw him as a as kindly grandfather, kindly wise grandfather. Other people saw him as this um, kind of a stern master who was really intent on following every detail of the vinaya. Right, every detail had to be perfect. Right? Other people saw him as just like really jolly and laid back and wasn't concerned about anything. So which Ajahn Chah is real, right? Which I, even, even just your, your, your teacher, when we were doing his biography, you know, so many people would, would give their experience of Ajahn Chah, and it varied quite a bit. You realize, well, people are kind of taking what they need or, or seeing different sides. So who is the real Ajahn Chah? Or is there any real Ajahn Chah? Or is there no Ajahn Chah? So how we perceive things plays this major role. We have raw sense data, and then we perceive and interpret and create. But that's still assuming that there is some fixed reality external. So what happens if externally there's not even shape or form or sounds? It's just electromagnetic energy and uh, particles, waves, whatever, right? So then we're getting into a more radical view of if there is an external reality, it's absolutely not sights, sounds, smells, colors, etc., so we, we, let's say our eyes are open, we see something, it's just waves or particles, somehow through our sense organs and through our nervous system and our brain functioning, it turns into shapes and colors and sounds that we recognize and perceive and label and categorize. So in this way of viewing reality, this three-dimensional reality that we seem like we're living inside is actually created with our senses in our minds and then projected out. We're gradually going more towards we are literally li- living in individual realities. It's just raw 
sense data is not even colors or shapes. It's just waves and particles. Only when it goes through our senses and goes into our, uh, our mind, basically. That it becomes three-dimensional, colorful, meaningful. And somehow then it feels like we are, we are surrounded. We are within this reality. But the truth is we're actually projecting it out. So if this is the case, now it's starting to get a bit weird. And the more insights you have, the more kind of verification you get that actually just kind of projecting all this out. So does that mean, like, how malleable is it, right? Can I, uh, can I just choose to project what I want to project? You know, and really to a certain extent we can. Perceptions are malleable. A lot of the work that we do in meditation is to, um, to work with the level of perceptions, for example, if we perceive someone as, uh, as a threat, then it's not conducive to happiness or spaciousness. So how can we change that perception to perceive them as friendly, kind, etc.? And say, well, which is, which is real? Well, kind of equal, equally real. But which is conducive to happiness? Which is conducive to sense of internal freedom? which is basically, which is conducive to contentment and peace of mind. So then you realize, okay, well, there are certain perceptions which are going to be more beneficial or useful. And our reality becomes a bit more malleable, right? It's not like positive thinking. Positive thinking is quite superficial. It's like, oh, everything's wonderful, everything's wonderful. I'll be rich in the future. I'll attract abundance, right? No, it's more like, um, I mean, you do systematic loving-kindness meditation, for example. You know, you're perceiving people in a positive way. Right? You're not actually working with the loved one, the neutral ones, ourself, the despised person. Right? You're not actually working with other people. You're just working with perceptions of other people based on memories. So these perceptions are quite malleable, even if even if we're working with someone who's always in a bad mood and frowning, and you can, you can get a visualization of them and then modify it, change them, visualize them smiling, and then you know, the per- perception of that person changes in our own mind. When we meet them later, then whatever their face looks like or whatever their mood is, our perception will be projected on top of that. We say, ah, good morning. Yeah, you look great. It's, uh, and it's, it's really just as real as, as anything else, and it's more conducive to happiness. So a lot of our work is seeing where are we stuck. Right? The meditations that we do, the systematic meditations that we do, where are we stuck? What things are leading to unhappiness, stress, suffering, anxiety, etc.? And how maybe can we modify our perceptions so that it's more conducive to happiness and, and uh freedom and peace of mind. And then you throw 
quantum physics into it, right? It's like, okay, I'm just kind of getting a handle on this malleable reality of perceptions, but it still feels like, you know, there's a fixed reality of electromagnetic energy out there that I'm just kind of, it's still raw, raw material that I'm picking up and projecting out. But then I, you read an article in quantum physics and they said, no, even that's in question. Can't even say that something literally exists until you observe it or experience it or come in contact with it. Does it make a difference? How much of a difference does it make? It only it makes a difference if if we are trapped in our perceptions and they're leading to cycles of unhappiness, right? Take uh, take views for example, like the things that that create our perceptions could be cultural conditioning, could be could be just the mood at the time, right? Our particular mood that we're in at the time will change our perception. One day, we perceive something, we're in a good mood, oh, I really like this, or I really like this person. Next day, we're in a bad mood, we think, this person's a jerk. Right? person really hasn't changed that much from day to day, but you know, our mood has. So that changes our perception. So how do we work with our perceptions that is going to be more conducive to our happiness, living harmoniously with other people, and ultimately, purifying our minds. Right? And we have high standards. Not just, not just trying to manage a level of happiness in life that we do all this practice. That is part of it. But ultimately, we're trying to purify our consciousness to the point where anger is completely eradicated. Selfish desire is completely eradicated. Right? Even every trace of delusion can be completely eradicated, but how do you do that? You have to start with where are we at? Just noticing how our perceptions are fueled by our views, which are fueled by our thoughts, so they kind of go in a cycle. Thoughts, views, and perceptions. Let's say you have a, um, you're in a situation, something happens, and uh, you have a view forms around it. So you have this view in your mind. Could be a political view, could be a social view. You have this opinion. Have opinion. Not that any of you might have opinion, but sometimes we might have opinions. And say, so where does that opinion come from? Well, it comes from past experience, right? kind of viewing things in a particular way. We experience something. If we have a view of how reality is, then we interpret that through our perceptions in a way that reinforces that view. And then thoughts start arising to justify why that view and that perception is correct. And they just keep reinforcing each other. And it's very difficult to break out of that. Right? It's like a mini samsaric cycle. It's difficult to break out of that. Every time we experience something, we're seeing it through a certain lens, right? which reinforces our thoughts, which reinforces, yeah, I'm right. I've been right all along. So it takes a lot of in integrity or sincerity just to, to question our perceptions. So, well, just because I believe something is right doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Maybe, maybe 
I'm perceiving it somewhat inaccurately, which of course, even by definition, we're all deluded. You know, if you compare yourself to the Buddha, we're all deluded by comparison. Right? Compared to the Buddha, we're, we all have mental illness. So if you just start there, then you can say, okay, fine. I'm not so. Everything I perceive is going to be inaccurate to some degree. And all the opinions and views that come from that are going to be based on that inaccurate information and perceptions. So I say, okay, then from this point, it's a little, a little easier to, to escape and start to think, well, maybe there are different ways that I can perceive things. Normally, it's only when we start to experience difficulties in life. Suddenly our perceptions and our views are not working anymore. They're not working for us anymore. Right? You go for a, maybe maybe they worked quite well for a while. Feeling great, things are going well. And suddenly uh, find yourself in difficult situations, pain starts arising. Could be a health issue. Could just be mental pain, could be loss, grieving. And then you then you realize maybe these thoughts and perceptions aren't working for us anymore. Is there a way that we can perceive things differently that would be more conducive to peace of mind? So this can be, you know, this is often an open, opening for people, a way to, to get a degree of freedom. If we're just following old perceptions all the time, basically we're living a robotic life. Right? Things happen, someone pushes our button, we react in a certain way like kind of robots. But if we can question, right, question the nature of reality, something happens to us, we say, well, this perception is merely there because of the culture I grew up in and the people I know and my family, and right? Okay. Well, that's merely a conditioned perception. Is it working for me? How can we perceive things in a way that's uh, maybe more conducive to uh, our own sense of peace of mind? So a lot of the meditations that we do, for example, the uh, perception of impermanence. Right? Now generally we try to perceive things more and more in line with the nature of reality. So we're not just creating perceptions that are like sugarcoating trying to make our perceptions more and more in line with the way things truly are. And just by, just the fact of doing that makes things, we don't experience a lot of the friction, right? When we perceive things inaccurately, tend to experience friction. And when we perceive things more accurately, then we tend to experience things go smoothly. And even if we agree with that theoretically, if our minds are filled with anxiety, they're not peaceful, uh, filled with fear, frustrations, right? it's very difficult to see anything clearly. Right? So the first step is always to come back to meditation. Just calming our minds allows us to begin to get a handle on, okay, well, this is merely a perception. This is merely how I perceive something. 
And then, as we get better at meditation, as a step-by-step -step gradual process, we realize there is a certain, certain freedom. You know? Mind becomes more powerful. We realize how we perceive something literally creates our reality, and we're not just victims. We can actually create the reality that we want to live in. I mean, it's not criticism that causes us to suffer, right? It's not lack of money that causes us to suffer. Not even physical pain or illness that causes us to suffer. Right? We've all seen inspiring examples of people who maybe have a physical disability or they just, they have, things aren't going well for them in life, but they've been able to make peace with it and accept it and, and uh, live a very fulfilling life. And they're, ins they're inspiring because, precisely because, they've learned how to, how to not be a victim to these perceptions, right? They've learned how to perceive something which normally we would think would be horrible and, uh, you know, would be a disaster in our life, but perceive it in a different way, and they end up more happy and joyful and have a peace of mind that maybe uh, healthy, wealthy, people who are, have a lot of anger and frustration and discontent you know, would be even less happy than they are. So it's not so much our external reality, external circumstances, right, but how we perceive them. So there's a, lot of, there's a huge amount of flexibility there. But it's really only training and meditation that makes our mind strong enough to be able to see and understand that. So then it is possible through this purification of perceptions to, to gradually eradicate all traces of anger, aversion, right? basically wise attention, paying wisely, paying attention wisely to this whole process. And every time that we, we feel like we're getting stuck in this cycle of suffering, perceiving, reacting in a way which is not conducive to, to being free of anger, then, uh, then we think, hmm, how about if, I, if I'm able to perceive that in a different way? Right? Once we become better at it, then there's a lot of flexibility there. And we can kind of perceive something very quickly, and then no, it's no longer a problem. Now, ultimately, if you are masters of your own mind and our three-dimensional reality is basically projected out, you can you think, well, let's see, why can't I, I should be able to walk through walls then. I should be able to levitate. Maybe I can walk on water, read minds, right? It's all projected out. Why can't I just, and that's where the whole realm of psychic powers comes in, which um, do seem real. I'm not going to, I just mentioned them here. People tend to like to, uh, I'm not going to say anything more about that right now because people get fascinated by it. <laughs> Let me just say that if you have total control over your mind, these things are possible. You can actually, it's like really, literally creating the reality that you live in. 
Now, the whole point of this from the Buddhist perspective is not to create a reality where we're the star or we're wealthy or we're, you know, we're the center. It's like, how can I create a reality which is going to be conducive to ultimate peace of mind? And ultimately, that means not identifying with things. Even identification, how does that form? Basically, you have raw information and then we perceive it as mine, right? Okay, we've got, we've got these uh, raw elements, right? It's just elements of various kinds. Basically, earth, water, etc. So you've got these elements, and then I perceive it as mine. In what way is it mine? It's just a perception, right? It's a perception that if you think about it, even without real insight, if you just think about it, you say, oh, it's not really mine, right? This body, it's not really mine. I just perceive it as mine. What way is it mine? It's just going. It's just elements, and I've kind of inhabited it. And you think, well, what is it that's inhabiting it? Um, that's identification too. Maybe I'm identifying with. Let's see, am I identifying with my feelings that's inhabiting this body, my perception? Then you start to get into perceptions, but they still feel like my perceptions. So even identify. That's just a perception that you're. Per- Identifying with your perceptions. So then step by step, see all these things that we identify with are the root cause of why suffering happens. And this has a very purifying effect. You just this over and over purifies our consciousness because the only reason we might become angry or frustrated, the only reason that we become greedy or selfish or full of cravings is because we don't understand things as they truly are. And as we gradually get more and more insight, our wisdom grows, and then we don't create the causes that have these unfortunate uh, results later on. So it is essentially the uh, eradication of delusion that leads to, uh, that's what we're after. That's kind of the end goal. If you, want to, if you want to have a goal in Buddhism, it's essentially eradicating delusion and understanding things as they truly are. So does this mean that all fully enlightened beings live in the same reality? They'll still perceive things differently, right, based on their cultural conditioning. But the general principles will be understood exactly the same. The level of of uh, freedom, freedom of consciousness is exactly the same in all enlightened beings. So in the end, whether there's an external reality or not, doesn't really matter. But what matters is how we work with it with our own perceptions. And uh, if we can do that in a wise way, then it leads to living a, a very calm, peaceful life, which can then be perfected. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. Swati, uh, I have to question, like, I don't know, probably you meant to that. Uh, how come, like, uh, you know, like, 
uh, you get receiving the same with your father. Like my father can have like a sticky hair. You know, the hair is sticking up like this. And I received that from him. What is the Buddha's meant to this? You know, like about the... Uh, about the yeah. What does the Buddha say about your yeah. father's hair? Like I received the thing <laughs> similar sound from my father. What is the Buddha say about that? No, uh, yeah, the gene about oh, a gene. Well, physically, we're conditioned by causes and conditions, right? We don't just, you know, this physical body just doesn't appear out of nothing, right? It it all has its causes what our parents look like, right? And then uh, the biological causes can carry on. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. <laughs> so everything that we experience has, arises out of causes and conditions. I see. Right? Certain conditions lead to certain results. Right? That's what we mean by being conditioned. As long as we're trapped in that, it's what we call conditioned reality, right? Okay. Another word for nibbana or enlightenment is the unconditioned, that which is not, does not arise from causes or conditions. So that's what the Buddha said about your father's hair. Okay. Yeah, as I um, as I sit here right now and talk, or different states, the perception is my consciousness is like here in this head, and I'm here and I have this body. But then, as concentration develops, the mind collects, that perception disappears, and the reality, the consciousness is actually just in my head. Doesn't seem to be the case. Could you comment on that? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? How it, consciousness is actually all around us, right? But it seems like it's kind of looking through these little windows up here, right? And it just shows how sight, you know, visually oriented we are. But really, you know, the consciousness—if we can feel something with our body, the consciousness is there. Otherwise, we wouldn't feel it. If we can hear something, etc. And is it actually located in our body? Right? It seems more accurate that it's kind of loosely based on the body, on our physical body, but it's more around us. Right? And the stronger your mind is, kind of the bigger radius. You know? That's why two people can think of the same thing to say at the same time. Right? It's like, you're reading my thoughts. No, no. I think it's actually just people's consciousness isn't limited by their skin. It's around, and then sometimes we're near other people and they intersect, and then a thought arises in that intersection. People say the same thing at the same time. It's like, whose thought was it? this, how it informs our perceptions and our experience? 
Well, karma is basically this uh, chain of events based on our intentions and motivations. Right? So, the vast majority of what we experience is a result of, of previous choices that we've made, intentionally or unintentionally. Right? Even if we're not paying attention, there are still motivations you know, and decisions being made. So at least if we start to perceive something in a more accurate way, then we can start, and we realize immediate, there's more freedom there. We can start to choose what motivations to follow. Right? Is this a wise motivation? Is this a wise thought or a foolish thought? Right? You think, if we don't, that's what we mean by being mindful. You know? In a nutshell, being mindful, but it's essentially being aware clearly observing, paying attention, and then, uh, say, a, a thought arises. You say, oh, I would like to, I would like to help my mother today, or whatever, right? I'd like to do something kind for somebody else, right, that, I, that we're living with. And you think, oh, okay, great. Well, that's a wholesome thought, usually, and, uh, you don't have to think, oh, that's a thought. Watch it arise and pass away. Right? Buddha didn't say just perceive everything to arise and pass away equally. He said those, those which are wholesome, oh, act on them. Yeah? If the thought arises, oh, it's, I'm already full, but I'd really like to have another pizza. You gotta be careful. If I mention anything in my Dhamma talk, then it's like every day for the meal, it's like pizza every day. <laughs> so, let's say a thought arises and you realize, what's that being fueled by? You kind of check your body, you check your. You say, oh, actually, it's fear. Right? Right? And the content of the thought, and what's actually causing the thought may, may not be clear. Right? But you check and say, wow, that's, uh, that's coming from insecurity, which is basically fear. Do I want to act on that? It feels like I have to act on it. But generally, anytime we act on fear, it has negative results. It doesn't have good results. Okay, well, mindfulness gives us that bit of space to be able to have a dynamic relationship with the present moment. So suddenly we're not just trapped in some fatalistic idea of karma, but it's a dynamic. We can choose how we want to respond. Or at least there is the illusion of free will. That's a different Dhamma talk. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just thinking throughout your talk about <clears throat> Um, like you said, the thoughts, the thoughts that are coming, you know, are uninvited. They're just thoughts are showing up in my mind. So I happen to believe that I've created those ca those causes for those thoughts to, you know, just as I've created the good causes to be here tonight, right. to listen to a Dharma talk. Mm -hmm. So it's just, um, yeah, I guess it's what I'm 
just already know the answer to my question, but um, I just want to make light of karma and the, the, I guess that element that, that informs what I'm actually thinking, what I, what actually, what I do with that thought is, and it's, it's up to my free will. Yeah, yeah, that's where, that's where we start to get a taste of freedom, right? You know, Americans love freedom. <laughs> but normally what we think of as freedom is it's not very free. You know, we're just trapped in cycles of being forced around by our conditioning, right? What we think is, what we think we need to do to be successful or to have fun or to be a good person or, or to be a bad, or whatever, right? We're just kind of forced by these conditioned perceptions and identifications and there's no real freedom there. So when you realize that, oh, I perceive that this way, I perceive this I perceive this person in a particular way, and I really believe it, but wait a minute. Maybe that perception is not right. Maybe that perception is merely a perception. Not that I'm neither right nor wrong, but it's merely a perception. Right? It's like, uh, you know, look at one person, you think, that person's crazy and aggressive. And you think, okay, well, what effect does that have on us? Does that, do we feel like, God, I'm, you know, physical tightening, mental hardening, want to say, right, or change them or get away from them, right, right? None of that is conducive to peace of mind, right? But basically, it's just a perception. We perceive someone as, as, uh, as aggressive or crazy or unpredictable, right? How about if we just, change the perception. Right? They may not do or say anything differently, but we can perceive them as, as merely a human being. Right? What they say or do or how they appear, all of that is just their conditioned reality. Right? But we don't have to be trapped by that. We don't have to be fixed into some... Right? It's much more <coughs> malleable and flexible. You say, how, what perceptions are going to make life you know, what perception is going to lead to you know, purifying our consciousness? Any perception that leads to an increase in anger or an increase in fear or an increase in selfishness, it's like this is not for our own benefit. This, is not, this doesn't work for us. Right? So fortunately, we're not just blindly trapped in that. We're not just victims of that. So this is all very much like interaction with the law of karma. Basically, law of karma is all the causes and conditions in the universe have led up to this moment, and you can't do anything about that. Right? But how we respond to that, that's our, our opportunity for freedom. Just a simple act of letting go. That's, that's one response, yeah. Of purification. Yeah. Letting go of what? Right, and right, and then you can take it deeper and deeper. It's like letting go of, of, of attachment and an angry thought. And then you think, okay, maybe I can even let go of the idea that I am a person who is angry. And you, know, you kind of take that deeper and deeper as practice goes on. Yeah, I know. It's easy to say, but it's really... <laughs> uh, 
is really deeply, <laughs> deeply ingrained in us that we exist here as an individual person. And that's like, it really takes a long time to kind of work on that. Huh? It's another teaching, right? <laughs> okay. Stick. Um, so one of my teachers, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, um, taught me about a, another perception of a sixth sense, which would be movement. Um, but some argue that movement is uh, output, not an input. <laughs> but your discussion of our reality is being projected as like all of our senses kind of being output, not input, um, made me curious about uh, the physical body as like every sense being projected. So I guess is movement a sense? Is movement? Is movement a sense? Yeah, is, is movement real? Is this body real? You start to, this, these ideas of reality start to throw our previous understanding of reality on its head. It's like everything gets turned upside down. So even this body, which seems so just kind of obvious, this is my body. Or I try not to identify with it too much because I know it's always changing and eventually we're going to get old. But but it's still my body, right? I say, well, at any, every, any given moment, even just the seeing of the form or the physical sensations is basically just raw sense data that goes into our nervous system and then projects out this, what feels like this three-dimensional body. It's not to say that we don't also live in a conventional level of reality. Right? We still have to function. We still have to get up in the morning and feed ourselves. You know, we can't just kind of lay in bed and think, okay, now I visualize my stomach full. Right? Now I visualize money in my bank account. Right? It's, it's like you still have to live, live in a conventional reality where there is movement and bodies and even in loving-kindness meditation, we're still visualizing perception as other individual people. Right? We're still working in very much in the conventional reality. But we try, try to remind ourselves that this is only one functional daily life way of looking at reality. Right? So we don't get too trapped in it. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, well, first, I, I appreciated your talk seven years ago here on cessation. It was seven or eight. Um, and I, I, I tried to practice that. I got rid of all my junk. I gave it away to people. And um, it really helped me. So I'm happy to see you again. <clears throat> I guess my question is, did you have trouble not judging people for their perception about a deity or a God? Perception of what? 
of a deity or a god? Not really. People are allowed to believe what they want to believe. Other people's opinions and beliefs are out of my control. Their beliefs are even out of their control. <laughs> right? They can't even control what they believe and their views and opinions and thoughts. It's like, how am I going to have any influence on their mind? So I'm like, yeah, if they want to believe this, fine. Right. Yeah, I guess I'm okay with that. And I just, I just, what I've been using is, um, I don't want to say that this is an unwise person. You know, and that's what I've been doing, and I, I have to get over that hump because I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to judge anybody's beliefs. But. It's hard not to view our perceptions as correct. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like it's just, just, it's very ingrained, you know? If we see something, we've kind of, you know, we're smart. We've thought it through. kind of makes sense. It's obvious. You know, and someone thinks something different, it's like, how could they not be wrong? must be wrong. It's logical. Um, but at least in small ways, you know, we can kind of see, well, this perception leads to this understanding. This perception leads to this result. It's understandable. And then it makes it easier to accept others and not judge others as, as being either right or wrong. He's got the microphone first. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so I just wanted to throw something out there. It is, it is hard uh, to let go of the idea of my perceptions being the correct ones, and I'm not saying that <laughs> that I'm going to throw out the correct answer here. But I just wanted to add to something you said about you know you you said you look at someone with difficult circumstances and how they're able to achieve inner peace. I do have a. I've had a lifelong physical disability. Um, I don't know personally, I don't think I can say that that being born with a physical, physical disability and having learning to live with it determined whether or not I would be able to achieve inner peace and that like that somehow I had an easier route than you did. I think ultimately the only difference is that that opportunity to make my life better maybe was a little more apparent, but I still, I didn't have to do any less work than you did. Um, I didn't have to, you know, we all got really difficult circumstances. Maybe it's, maybe the way out is just a little more visible to me because it's, my difficulties are so apparent to everybody else. I don't know. But I don't think I don't think to myself, wow, I had to work so much harder to make myself happier than all the rest of you guys. There's really no difference here between how we suffer. I mean, you know, the circumstances are a little different, but we all suffer. That's that's just all there is to it. And I can decide to do something about it or not. Um, anyway, that's just my take on it. Yeah. You know, people with... Basically, in terms of insight, anybody is, is equally valid as an object of meditation. And the, people, the people I see who everything seems to be going really well for, just being a monk, often they'll come up and confide what's really going on in their lives. Right? On the surface, they look like they got their act together, 
They look like they're healthy. They look everything's going well. Financially, it's fine, right? Then they come and confide. You realize a lot of that is just upholding a certain... They feel like, you know, that's what they have to do. Try to look like their Facebook page. Try to look as happy as their, <laughs> as their Facebook page makes them appear. And, and uh, you realize hardly anyone is really... There's, not, there's no one that doesn't have difficulties, right? Even if everything's perfect for a while, it comes to an end. You know, eventually everyone's going to be challenged. Uh, and it's often, that, often that is the window that makes people question. You know, when everything's going really well for us in life, it's easy to be callous, it's easy to be... I don't know, it's, it's more difficult to empathize with people who are having difficulties. And you think, well, why? Why don't they get their act together, right? Do what I do, you know? Until they experience, maybe they suddenly get cancer, or maybe they, their child dies, or maybe, you know, you get into an accident. Maybe things happen in life, eventually, to everybody. And it's, that's often the window that people can, can uh, say, well, okay, maybe I should have another look at life. And uh, clearly just relying on these old, clear, just relying on everything going right in order to be happy, getting what you want. If you, as long as, obviously, if we get what we want, it's conducive to a temporary happiness. Right? But just relying on that as a plan for life. This is my strategy for life. I'll just get what I want all the time. <laughs> right? It's only funny because we all try to do it. <laughs> right? it's, like, it's like, obviously, I want to be surrounded by beautiful things that I like, or beautiful people, or nice sounds, comfortable situation. I don't want to be uncomfortable, so I want things to be comfortable. Uh, I want everything to be the right temperature, so I'm not confronted with heat or cold. You know, I, just, you don't want to, unpleasant smells, right? You don't, right? We avoid people that smell bad. Uh, you want delicious food. So much effort goes into just a little bit of difference in taste. We have just a nice, delicious food. So that's basically orienting our life around trying to get everything, just, just trying to gratify what we want. And it's hard work. It takes a lot of management. And if that's our strategy for our happiness, then it's eventually we'll come up against some roadblock. Right? Now the only you know, and even people who have seemingly have everything, they can be miserable. <laughs> so those external conditions, our phys- physical health. How much money we have, whether we have a wonderful family or however we perceive our family, you know, all these external conditions, they, they play a role in us. They're like the raw material, but they don't have to determine our level of happiness. That's really up to us, how we perceive the situation, how we work with it, and how we respond to it. Um, but when everything's kind of going well, then it feels like there's no need to do any serious work with our perceptions. When things start to get difficult, that's when we realize, okay, this is no longer working. I've got to find a better way.
while you were talking, I actually uh, related it to something kind of funny, but I remember watching a Star Trek episode <laughs> where um, the Starfleet found a consciousness without any form or any human body, anything tying it to the universe. And this uh, consciousness possessed one of the characters, Spock, and it said how lonely it was to be stuck in a body. <laughs> and I thought that related so much with the talk of reality and how it's we're so stuck in this body and when we open up and we realize that really we are just a consciousness, we can be free from this body through our consciousness. <clears throat> Way cool. <laughs> So it was only when the consciousness went into Spock's body yeah. that he felt lonely because mm -hmm. of separation. Suddenly you feel separated. You have an individual body. And suddenly, oh my God, now I'm separated from the rest of nature. Right? Yeah. That's all you have to do is just not be limited by this. Some conscious right, right. <laughs> yeah, my name's Rob. And uh, as another fan of science fiction, I would like to thank you for starting your talk with a red pill and a blue pill. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. While you were speaking, I was reminded of a joke by uh, George Carlin, and it had to do with, like, my belongings are stuff, but your belongings are junk. And the belongings are the same regardless. It's our attitude towards the belongings. Right. He's yeah. mentioning your teacher, who is a great guy. No, he's an old fart with an anger problem. <laughs> he's the same man. Yeah. Anyways, right. thank you. <laughs> all right, so if we live in a... I didn't even go into this part, all right? So let's say you're following on from quantum physics, basically... Um, Real, reality doesn't exist until we interact with it. We can't actually say something exists in a particular state until we interact with it. And following on from that, the latest kind of articles are about reality is basically bits of information. So if that's the case, one of the easiest logical conclusions is that we are really in a computer simulation, a computer-generated simulation. And there are very smart people who think, you know, that odds are that that's a likely outcome, that this is a computer generated, and that would fit with the findings in quantum physics. So then if we are in a matrix-like reality, does it make any difference? If we are, if we are in a computer generated reality, does it make any difference in how we live? If we're not in a computer generated, a computer generation, then uh, the, the basic, you know, we still have to act the same, right? If we are in a computer generation, then uh, our pain still feels real, our happiness still feels real. How we perceive things is still basically the same. So does it matter? Maybe this 
the Buddha was never very specific about what happens to a fully enlightened person after they die. So, it was, could, so maybe we win the game. <laughs> the whole thing is a computer game that we're involved in. And then after you've fully purified your consciousness, then you escape from that game, that computer-generated reality, and you wake up on the couch of some alien. Some alien's couch, you realize, this was just a computer game? Yeah, it doesn't matter if my cat is both dead and alive at the same time. I still have to yeah. eat breakfast. I know. Fortunately, they've, they've saved Schrodinger's cat. They've saved it. I had a question about causes and conditions, and I was trying to understand, um, were you saying that freedom is going beyond causes and conditions? I mean, I've been kind of thinking lately that so much of what happens is because of causes and conditions. Pretty much everything that happens, yeah, is due to causes and conditions, some of which were our ch conscious choices in the past that led to saying and doing certain things which then had repercussions that led eventually to us being here and now. Right. So where's the freedom? Where's freedom? So even within this flow of causes and conditions, if something happens and then we feel like due to our strong habits, we have to react in a certain way, then there's very little freedom there. Right? Someone criticizes. We do something, we do our best, and someone criticizes it, and they said, that's a bad job. And what we hear is, you're a bad, stupid person. And it's like without our, our previous conditioning due to whatever, family, society, etc. Immediately we jump to, this is you know, anger, judging the other person, falling into self-hate. I, I knew I was, all along I knew I was no good, or, or just an angry reaction to the other person. Right? So there's no real freedom there. It's just a result of how we've learned how to react, or the emotions are so strong it feels like there's no real freedom. And until we develop this quality of awareness and observation, you know, mindful, clear awareness, you know, that's not, it's not like a quality that's either there or not. I mean, yes it is, but it can be developed in definite gradations of strength. So sometimes we're, we're mindful that we're having this reaction, but we still can't stop ourselves. But at least that's a start. It's an important start. And then, okay, fine. Watch the results. And we see, oh, well, that had bad results again. I shouldn't have said anything, but whatever. I couldn't stop myself. And I saw 
the danger in that. So maybe with more meditation, then next time it happens, we, we can re respond in a little bit better. We still feel the emotions, but we, we don't say anything. There's a little bit more freedom there. It's like we're not forced to say or do something because of these emotions. There's a little bit more freedom there. Right? Maybe later on, after another 20 or 30 years of meditation, then the same thing happens. We do something with our good intentions and someone criticizes it and then we think, ah, mind is quiet. No reaction. Their perception is merely their perception. I don't even think of them as wrong. Oh, of course, they are wrong, but... <laughs> right? But, but I don't have to perceive them as wrong. It's just, oh, this, hmm, my mind is quite free. Oh, wow, there's some actual freedom there. My mind feels spacious, it's quiet, I'm, I don't feel like I'm robotically reacting with some reaction. Oh, it feels spacious. Oh, maybe this is the kind of freedom that we were talking about. Right? And then we can, we can choose. We can say, oh, thank you. Thank you for your feedback. <laughs> right? Not, not cynically. And mean it. Not sarcastically. All right, you say, you say, oh, thank you for your teaching. You know, <laughs> roll your eyes, thank you for your teaching. <laughs> but you can kind of, since, you know, it's like, oh, wow, there's freedom there. I'm not, I don't have to react in any particular way. It's like, wow. And then it feels great. So that's the kind of freedom we're talking about. I mean, that's the beginning of it. It's a gradual process. I just have a clarification on terminology. In response to Rob's question, you said once you purify your consciousness, why not is, is didn't you say why not, or after you purify your mind? Mm -hmm. Consciousness is the, is one element of our mind, right? Emotions, you could say purify your emotions, like for, um, we're trying to, purify anger, you purify your emotions so that anger gradually disappears. And what's left are wholesome emotions, kindness, love, you know, wholesome emotions that lead to joy. So you could say that. Consciousness is kind of a, kind of a key factor in, in the, of the mind. Mm -hmm. right? Essentially, it's, it would be the same. There's a lot of synonyms that we use. Mind, heart, consciousness, awareness, purify your awareness. So then once your delusion is gone, you could say you're with pure mind or pure consciousness. It's synonymous? Not exactly synonymous, but maybe different facets of the mind. Just go for purification. <laughs> just, just, just Purify it all. <laughs> yes. What part do you think the ego plays in the perceptions that our thoughts create? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it messes the whole thing up. I mean, what, ego is a psychological term, but basically it's the identification of various aspects of our reality. When we identify some, with something that gradually seems to create this three-dimensional me that's separate. Right? So it's basically just working with perceptions. One of the in meditation, we try to develop the calmness and clarity and strength of mind that we can kind of look bit by bit. What is it that constitutes this ego or this sense of self? Right? Why do I, why do I, why do I feel like I exist separately? Right? Typically, the Buddha will talk about, you know, body. You can work with body and perceptions around our body, our feelings, our memories, perception, obviously. Thought formations, awareness of consciousness, right? Basically, basically everything in our existence, we can quickly identify with it. Even if it's unpleasant, you know, my pain, right? Boom, we've created a part of, you know, something else that feeds into what we identify with as being me, right? My pain. Or even something as simple as I'm seeing, like right now, I'm seeing you, right? That much, boom, instantly, there's an assumption of me, a separate being, separate consciousness over here, seeing another individual over there. It's like, okay, well, let's, we don't have to buy into that. Yes, conventionally, sure, that's the conventional reality that we live in, but try to remind ourselves, that's just how we perpetuate this whole illusion based on delusion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.